Okay, salamu alaikum everybody. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Welcome to another amazing Saturday session. We missed you. I know I missed being with you on Tuesday night or Wednesday night um, or during the week. Um, it's a crazy busy time, um, but I'm grateful for any opportunity to get together. So maybe um, it makes these um, weekly meetings even more special. Alhamdulillah, I'm so excited for tonight, another episode of, or <laughs> another session um, of uh, Surah um, Al-Nisa. Um, before we get started, um, I first I wanted to just um, express my sincerest gratitude um, and love to everyone um, who has donated um, to, um, to Usuli, to our cause, to everything that we're doing. Um, this week I spent a lot of time digging into um, the numbers um, in, you know, in terms of like um, tax returns. Um, you guys will be getting, um, you know, tax receipts um, soon for your donations. But, you know, it's extremely humbling to um, actually look at the number of people who have given, and even, you know, whether you've given $5 or, you know, $5,000 or even more, um, you know, it's, it's so, um, it's heartwarming. It's really hard to express um, the, the amount of gratitude. Um, and I'm going to be sending you all love letters soon, so um, look out for that. But, you know, it's, it's, we, we know that what we're doing is um, something that not um, everyone is interested in or necessarily appreciates or is really even willing to spend time um, doing, which is, you know, investing in understanding and learning the Quran. And so, you know, we obviously, when we're posting three, four-hour halakas, you know, that's not something that most people are interested in digging into. But for people who um, who find us, um, who start watching, who get hooked, who, you know, love just the learning, and then, um, you know, love enough to sacrifice and, and part with their money in this time, um, is something that's really beautiful. And so when I look at, you know, what people have donated over the course of a year, you know, a small group of people, but you just, you feel the heart and the love. And I just want to express how much that means because we couldn't do what we do here without your support. And, you know, we hope, inshallah, that we can continue doing a lot more um, and that more people will find us um, when it's time. Um, and inshallah, you know, obviously I'm, I'm really excited to start, you know, thinking about how to craft stage two of Project Illumin, which is digging into the Sira, which, you know, if you know how special what this has been about Project Illumin with the approach to the Quran, the Sira is going to be something, inshallah, out of this world of the same caliber um, and of, you know, incredible importance too. So I really am so grateful for everyone's support and I hope that you will, you know, stay with us and, and continue with us on this journey and, you know, spread the word as you can because I truly, truly believe um, that anyone who is with us on this journey is part of a very special group um, that I believe God will honor because, you know, we're dedicated to God's knowledge and we're trying to do something that is totally against the tide of our times. Um, but, you know, with that, I, I'm so grateful every time I hear from people who write to me and share their stories. I'm always, you know, whenever people reach out, I always ask, you know, I'd love to know more about you and know more about your journey if you care to share. Um, and I, you know, am always blown away by the response that I get from people. And, you know, there are a lot of people also who offer to help in different ways. And so this week I actually um, connected with um, someone who, you know, is very interested in helping and, um, and I asked if I could share a little bit of, um, of his message to me because, you know, I was talking about how, you know, again, what we do here is really serious and kind of and, and different and requires an investment of time. And I like I feel a lot of times what's important for us, at least from an outreach perspective, is just to let people know that we're here 
because I think when people are really open to this journey is when they hit a crisis point or something happens in their life that makes them question their faith, you know, doubt something, something that shakes up their world and makes them start on this journey of searching and wanting to find something, you know, because it's one thing when you see like, you know, cool quotes and posts on Instagram, you know, I mean, it may, you may read it and go, yeah, that sounds wonderful. But I think when you really need it, you know, I hope that we're planting seeds that people will know when you reach that point where you really are ready to take your religion seriously and really dig into what what the meaning of life is and what, you know, at least from, you know, an Islamic perspective and you're willing to invest the time to study, that you'll remember, okay, oh, Usuli, I think those guys were doing stuff with the Quran. Let me go check it out. And maybe that's the way in. So this was a really sweet message. Um, so I was explaining to this person, you know, I've always felt like our job is sort of to plant seeds for people when they're ready, and um, and that not everyone is is on this, you know, is ready. So he wrote back, um, "Yes, your your description of Dr. Abel Fuddle's work is exactly right. So much so that when I get a no notification from Asuli on YouTube or elsewhere, my soul feels a weight and a responsibility. It is a level of seriousness that has altogether vanished from public discourse." Often I'm enjoying the frivolity of my time off, only uh, to be rudely disturbed by the morbidity of Usuli's productions. Just kidding. Um, I used to live in that serious realm as a college student, but the steady onslaught of anti-intellectualism, hypocrisy, and cynicism from all sides made me distraught and disillusioned with the value of truth in society. So what if it's true? Who cares? So what if it's right? Who cares? Such is the subtext of much of modern life. Dr. Abelfuddle's articulation of the power, beauty, and value of truth is something I'm most thankful for and for cementing beauty and ethical conduct as a guiding spirit of Sharia. So it's such a beautiful message. And um, I just, you know, it's it's so true. Like, you know, in our time, it's um, it's difficult to find places where you can turn, you know, for truth and seriousness and education. And so I, I truly hope that, you know, we can continue on this journey and continue to be, you know, a source of comfort and um critical thinking um, and, you know, focus on ethics and the Quran moving forward. So, so thank you to everyone who's been with us on this journey. Um, I also wanted to just call attention to yesterday's khutbah, which was amazing as usual, but it was particularly powerful in, in terms of what, what I'm talking about here. It's the, the title of the khutbah is, um, how do our youth make sense of this world? And it's, you know, one of these, it was very special because, um, you know, it, it throws at you. What's the point of what's the point of life? What's the meaning of life? What's our purpose? Um, you know, remember death and and how so many things in this life that we live is designed to distract us from the truth of things, which is that we will die and that there is something that comes after this life. And I, I was so happy because our our son Mito actually happened to be in the audience, and I feel like he actually really inspired a lot of what was said. And I was just praying that he. Would really take to heart what was said and and this was a khutbah that i'm sure i know i mean if i had grown up muslim i had wanted to have heard when i was growing up and i'm sure it's something that maybe even a lot of adults really need to hear but it's just one of these you know beautiful powerful um very incisive khutbahs that i i hope if you haven't had a chance to watch it um that you will it was it was quite epic and and quite special so um that was it, and then um, I think that is all I wanted to share is just to really say thank you, um, and you know, inshallah, um, I pray that that this journey will, um, you know, even though we've slowed down this this semester, um, that you know it'll continue to be really, really powerful and special, and you know that we will continue to be able 
to inspire more more support and um, and love. Thank you so much from all of us here. And I'm so looking forward to another amazing session continuing on with Surah Al-Nisa. Thank you for joining us. وعلى آله وأصحابه وعلى من اتبعوا بإحسان إلى يوم الدين اللهم اشرح لي صدري ويسر لي أمري وحلل عقدة من لساني يفقه قولي يا رب إلى الله Okay, so we are in سورة النساء um, I think we stopped at Ayah 13 or so. But just as a very quick recap to situate us as we move forward, inshallah. It is important that as you learn, as you add knowledge or awareness, insights in the Quran, that you don't forget what you've already learned. And so after the long uh, period of preparing for the unfolding, in Medina, the, the various suwar that were revealed in Mecca, which we've talked about, as we've discussed, uh, Surah Al-Baqarah had a central theme, and that is the deconstruction of the idea of God playing favorites, deconstructing the traditional assumptions about privilege and status and the insistence that accountability is not just individual but that God treats um, collectivities according to the, how they discharge their moral responsibilities. And then we, as we saw in Ali Umran, the Quran comes and acknowledges that there are immense sacrifices or that effectively what Muslims are required and called upon to do is to engage in a deliberate, consistent, exhaustive, jihad, um, but as we saw in Ali Umran, that the central theme is that you don't know the consequences, you don't know the results of actions. Your job is to adhere to the moral precept, to discharge to the best of your ability your moral obligation, 
and deconstructs the idea or challenges the idea that it is your job to be a political or to be a realist, to, to say, well, you know, I must look at the consequences and my focus ought to be on the pragmatic consequences rather than the moral ideas, ideals. And then with, we, of course, we, we've talked about the, the interlude with the issues of spoils of war, which it's a really challenging, the notion of that you can serve God by being wedded to materialist causes. That if your purpose are materialist gains, in this case, spoils of war, then, then you are not going to have what Surah Al-Baqarah and Surah Al-Umran is talking about. And then Surah Al-Nisa comes and it deliberately starts a process, I think it would be fair to call a process of empowerment. It is a sustained discourse on the singular theme of empowerment but it is not a revolutionary document. It is actually a, rem a remarkable study in how a combination of revolutionary ideas implemented through incremental uh, steps of reform. So it, it the, the, the remarkable thing is that while Ali Omran says focus on the moral ideals, but the way Anissa teaches us to pursue these ideals, it always anchors us in a look at the realities of society and what the realities of society, the way that you, 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 um, the way that you pursue progressive ideas without being oblivious to the practical needs um, and challenges that people confront. And so, as we said last time, that in pre-Islamic society, not just in Arab societies, but all around the world, uh, but particularly, of course, in the context we're talking in, it was in the Jahiliyyah, that women would not inherit, but women would be inherited by uh, often uh, as either an option to marriage or so in some legal orders, women would be actually inherited themselves by um, um, siblings or, or so on. Uh, and children did not inherit and there are the various institutions of privilege which Surat al-Nisa starts challenging in a 
and and the opening of Surah Nisa, as we talked about, is this radical egalitarian message. So an example of revolutionary ideas, but the way you activate these revolutionary ideas, the way that you um, uh, bring them to the fore, the way the way you put them forward, is while you state the ideal, but at the same time you are working within the practical needs of society. And so, as we saw in the, just the very first ten ayat, that there's the issue of orphans, which was a consistent, systematic issue. Orphans dovetails with the issue of social status in matters of marriage. Do you marry your child only to someone who is of the same status? Um, and what status means, and as we saw in the first 10 ad, there is an immediate challenge to that. Um, and taking on the, the issue of male, or in, in, a, in a set of dynamics that we will see, it starts taking on as well the issue of male privilege and patriarchal institutions uh, up till then. And it, interestingly enough that up till the Quranic revelation, Institutions like polygamy, which were very widespread in the Near East, Near Eastern legal systems in general. But I've actually, this was a while ago, but I tried to see if any Near Eastern legal system had placed a restriction on polygamy. And the answer is no, that the Quranic revelation at the time it was revealed, it was the first time in Near Eastern legal systems in this part of the world other parts of the world were actually not clear because it, it, remember that the very idea um, of marriage, the institution of marriage was often intermingled with issues of power. So where the state is powerful, the state might regulate marriage where its sovereignty is most absolute but in the peripheries, often marriage is not regulated at all. So outside the Near Eastern legal systems, it, it gets the picture gets very murky and very confusing. Um, but anyway, and as we also saw, there's a legislation on the matter of uh, and developed further later on in Surah Nisa on the rights of slaves. And on what back then, and to an extent still remains, but to a lesser extent, the issue of dowry and who gets to keep dowries, and, and so on. So we, we saw, at least in the first 10 ayat of Surah An-Nisa, some of the reform program of the Quran, it is quite fascinating that some of it 
remained a social challenge that was never really successfully and rigorously implemented. So, you know, did, uh, did the practice of um, older uncles and older relatives disinheriting orphans end, it remained a challenge. I mean, the reform was initiated by the Quran, and, but it remained a, 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 a tense, dynamic issue, even to our very day. Same thing with um, questions of inher inheritance to women. Um, up to modernity, there are numerous parts of the Muslim world, many regions, and even till today, there are parts of the Muslim world that refuse to allow women to inherit, especially tribal areas in the Muslim world. Um, and some things, like what Aisha says about Hudur uh, al-Qusma, the, the people who are present when an inheritance is, so in other words, dependence within the family, like servants, slaves, uh, whatnot, that don't get a legal share. And the Quran instructs that they should be given something. That they, but as Aisha noted, that tahawana, um, that people never implemented it. Um, but it remains part of the Quranic normative challenge, is that although till our very day, I mean, if you talk to the average or even a scholar, you tell them, um, you know, should the law require that even those who don't get shares but are financially dependent require that they be given a share? The idea would strike them uh, would strike them as very odd. Although, as we saw in verse eight of Surah An-Nisa, it's there. Um, okay. And we, we've stopped, I think we, we've talked about 13, which is the inheritance surah or the inheritance verse. And as I noted, just the inheritance law becomes mathematically quite challenging. And there are specialists in Islamic inheritance law because of the complexity of the share system. But I want to underscore this, this notion that inheritance law was not just, it's not just cold mathematics without a moral project. There is a moral project behind inheritance law. There is a philosophy as to when you allow parents to inherit, when you allow siblings to inherit, when you allow children to inherit, and that part 
remains grossly underdeveloped in Sharia studies. The, the, the sort of the moral project behind inheritance law. And if we understand the moral project, then the question becomes, of course, well, how can you further the moral project and perfect that moral project to the extent of your ability? But first, you must comprehend it, obviously. But because, you know, just getting people the shares even that are allowed, the Quranic shares, had remained a challenge. Um, the impetus to look beyond um, was never there. But I think we, we fail God's message when we don't look at what the moral project of the Quran is. Okay, so now let's try to move on because we'll see that Surah An-Nisa will has this 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 empowerment project in a word, and it's sort of the the becomes the the catch word for the entire Surah, Al-Mustadafin, those who are disempowered. But at the same time it responds to ongoing, you, you have this moral project, but the moral project is constantly threatened by various external elements. The moral project itself is, it, 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 all Muslims today know the impact of external pressures and external threats upon any uh, internally coherent program. So you might have the best intentions as to how to improve yourself, but the, if the external circumstances are too challenging, your ability to actually implement this program of internal reform uh, becomes exceedingly difficult. So we, we see this in Surah Al-Nisa in a very dynamic way. While it pushes this internal program, at the same time, it is responding to very real, concrete reality that surrounds Muslims. And it can be summed up in what we've already encountered in Surah Al-Baqarah and Ali Amran, and that is the ranks of the external enemies and how do we deal with these external enemies and the moral challenges that they pose and the rank, the, the, the second main uh, challenge, external challenge or the outsider's challenge is the challenge of uh, what the Quran calls the hypocrites. Those who claim to be a part of the Muslim Ummah, but they are not, they don't embrace its moral program. And as we will see, Surah Al-Nisa weaves back and forth 
through these issues. But inshallah, as I'll show you at the end, it is in a remarkably coherent, uh, systematic vision of reform. So 14, notice that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala underscores after setting out the shares, underscores the, the idea of hudud, the idea that these are, this program, I, that who, who refuses to implement God's program is in fact an outsider. When you see Ayah 14 following Ayah Al-Mirath, the, the Ayah on inheritance right after, the, in, the, in, the, in the flow of the narrative, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is underscoring, I know all the social resistance that exists and the obstacles that persist when it comes to inheriting women or allowing minors to inherit or allowing some relations um, that, so for instance, often the paternal cousin would consider himself entitled to anything and would consider his share to, because the, the, the status of the paternal cousin in tribal societies. Um, so, but the Quran is, is aware that there, there is going to be the social resistance and so you find in 14 this underscoring that you have a choice. You either understand God's program and join it, or you are a transgressor. You are an outsider. Then it moves on to another subject that is often not well understood by contemporary Muslims, وَاللَّاتِ يَأْتِينَ الْفَاحِشَةَ مِنْ نِسَائِكُمْ فَاسْتَشْهِدُوا عَلَيْهِنَّ أَرْبَعَةً مِنْكُمْ فَإِنْ شَهَدُوا فَإِنْ شَهِدُوا فَامْسِكُوهُنَّ فِي الْبِيُوتِ حَتَّى يَتَوَفَّاهُنَّ الْمَوْتِ أَوْ يَجْعَلَ اللَّهُ لَهُنَّ سَبِيلًا وَاللَّذَانِ يَأْتِيَانِهَا مِنْكُمْ فَآذُوهُمَا فَإِنْ تَابَ وَأَصْلَحَ فَاعْرِضُوا عَنْهُمَا إِنَّ اللَّهَ كَانَ تَوَّابًا رَحِيمًا إنما التوبة على الله للذين يعلمون يعملون السوء بجهالة ثم يتوبون من قريب فأولئك يتوب الله عليهم وكان الله عليما حكيما. Okay, so fifteen and sixteen, um, and then the the ayat التوبة in seventeen and eighteen, which we'll we'll get to. So first, you notice, let's look at the, this is Muhammad's Asad's translation. Uh, 
um, so it says, yeah, so he translates al he translates al-fahisha as immoral conduct. Uh, as for those of your women who become guilty of immoral conduct, many Quranic interpreters state that this ayah relates to um, sexual acts between women. So that it relates to women having sexual relation, sexual relationship with women. Um, and so they say that this ayah has to do with sahak, what is known in Islamic law as sahak. However, the evidence for that is rather very weak. What the ayah says is that women who commit a fahisha, now fahisha in a broad sense is any immoral conduct, but normally, usually in language, we re, what is called the fahisha is immoral sexual conduct. And when you look into the background of this issue, uh, the other thing uh, I should tell you is that often in tradition, in tafsir, especially the later tafsir, they'll tell you that, well, this ayah was the initial legislation about those who didn't necessarily limit it to sihak, those who said, well, it extends to any sexual, immo, immo, sexual immoral conduct, uh, say, well, you know, this ayah was abrogated by the Quranic revelation on jeld, on the 100 lashes, and who witness zina, or the, the ayat is zina. But we have to go back and look at what the Quran was talking about and what it was addressing. So when you look at the, the context of this revelation, is that there, there was a, 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 a custom or a habit or a cultural practice in which husbands would accuse their wives of having committed sexually immoral sexual conduct. So they would say, I suspect or I accuse my wife of having been with a man or having whatever the sexual immoral conduct is. And once they did that, they would give themselves the right or the cultural customs would empower these men to take away whatever money they've given them, whatever gifts they're given them, whatever dowries they've given them as well, 
And simply on the say-so of the husband, lock the woman up and she becomes a prisoner uh, in the husband's home who is free to marry other women, neither divorcing her nor releasing her, in some rare circumstance, she would be imprisoned in her family's home. And so for complicated reasons, when people read this ayah, they focused on the punishment instead of focus, focusing on the fact that here is the first mention before ayat zina of four witnesses. And that's the critical issue. No one was surprised about no one was surprised about, well, okay, you know, keep them at home. What was unusual and what everyone took note of is that it was no longer acceptable to take action against these women simply on the say-so of the husband. And that this was the first time that the Quran comes and requires four witnesses. Now, furthermore, so often... And and this whole abrogation issue, true, ayat zina requires four witnesses that see the act of zina. But here is something, what often happened is that the husband would say, well, I don't know if there was intercourse or not, but I know that she's been with a man. That they fooled around, that they, they're dating, they're, you know, they're, they, they're meeting behind his back. Uh, and that would be enough to for the, the severe consequences that would take place in society where these women would be locked up and often their inheritance would be taken, their dowry would be taken, and so on. So the Quran came for the first time as, uh, and to say, okay, no, you need four witnesses. And the four witnesses, not witnessing the actual intercourse, but witnessing the sexual immorality. Furthermore, now, this expression, and yaj'alallahu lahunna sabila. So, it is a judicial process, a judgment, with what, to our modern mind, something resembling a um, a, a um, the the system of parole, where you 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 revisit the issue and see. If the, even if there were four witnesses and the matter has been 
established and the woman was held to be guilty and she is under home imprisonment or house arrest effectively, whether by revisiting the issue, you say that she now is repentant, she has achieved tawbah, and therefore released. So the, 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 there is a procedural reform of requiring evidence and a post-conviction reform of saying, well, it is not you get convicted and it's over, but you get convicted and there is an ongoing process of revisiting whether in fact repentance has been achieved. There's, and when it came to application, there's another reform that is not mentioned in the Quran, and that is once, if there are four witnesses, and in fact a woman is convicted, the marriage dissolves. So when it said, فَمْسِكُوهُنَّ فِي الْبِيُوتِ for the early, for er, the earliest Muslim jurists, they said, okay, well, the marriage has dissolved, so it can't be that she is under house arrest in the husband's home. So either the state has to provide a home, or the majority said, the overwhelming majority said, is that she be held, she'd be under house arrest either in her own home or the home of her family. Um... Okay, there is a hadith that's a problematic authenticity, but it's, uh, you, you find it in the tradition and you find a lot of discussions about it, that when the verse on flogging a zani wa zaniya, um, a hundred lashes was revealed that the Prophet ﷺ commented upon this and said, well, in Surah An-Nisa, it said, imprison them at home until death or until God makes a way out for them. And then the Prophet then commented, well, now God has made a way out for them, meaning that, implying that the verse on hundred lashes, which is revealed years later, um, has now abrogated the house imprisonment verse in Surah An-Nisa. But even the traditional jurists have questioned the authenticity of that tradition. And it is very likely that what the later verse on the hundred lashes verse is talking about is actual zina, is sexual intercourse for witnesses that witness the act of intercourse. This ayah is talking about a different dynamic, and that is a dynamic where either the husband or the family of the husband would accuse a woman not of necessarily sexual intercourse, but of sexual misconduct. And it then says, bring forth four witnesses. Now, of course, I was curious if we have in the tradition 
a recorded incident where a woman, after the revelation of this ayah, we, we have many reports about before the revelation of this ayah, men accusing their wives of sexual misconduct or of, of falling in love with someone else and then turning her into a, sort of a prisoner at home. But after this ayah, which effectively dissolved this practice, the question is, do we have an incident where someone successfully brought four witnesses and convicted a woman or, or their wife uh, to remain under house arrest? If there was, it's not recorded in history books. So in other words, I couldn't find. But I did find many references to the jahili practice of wives under house arrest for suspected sexual misconduct for that practice to have ended. You find several references that tell you that that practice ended after Surah An-Nisa. Interestingly, in the early reports of early Islamic jurisprudence in the first three centuries or so, jurists talk about what is very, I mean, similar, in, in, except, of course, in the modern age, it's, you have a parole board and you have a regular review process, but they talk about the process of if there is a conviction a process of appointing a aqil or a, 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 a trusted, um, uh, sagacious people, representative of the community, to periodically review whether a woman who's been convicted has achieved tawbah, has achieved repentance, and therefore is entitled to be released from house arrest. Although, again, I mean, I, I couldn't find, like, it is quite rare, if not actually in Islamic history, extremely. Um, I, I I haven't found a single case even in Islamic history where someone was convicted uh, by four witnesses. I mean, there are people who are stoned or flogged because they confessed, but you don't have incidents where you people actually successfully produce four witnesses. Here, you don't even have examples of confessions. So you don't have reports that say, a woman came and said, yeah, I confess committing a fahja. We don't have that. Um, which, I mean, it added to the obscurity of the circumstance to which this area, of the circumstances area was talking about. Now, look at... 16. So 16 and punish, Muhammad Asad puts, writes, and punish thus both of the guilty parties. 
there is a very lively debate again in Islamic law about verse 16. Because وَالَّذَانِ يَأْتِيَانِهَا مِنْكُمْ Is it referring to two females? Or is this one of those circumstances where grammatically, although you're for using what appears to be the feminine form, you are actually not referring necessarily to two females, but you could be referring to the male and female. So this is one of the reasons that there are many jurors that said this is referring to sihaq, to sex that takes place between women and women. Because they looked at 16 and said, well, what it's saying is punish both women. The married woman goes into house arrest, the unmarried woman or the other woman, it doesn't specify what their, the punishment is, but that it just simply say punish both, both women. When I researched again, the, the actual um, dynamics of the narrative, the, the historical context of the narrative, what emerged is something that actually doesn't support the Sihak pro, the, the, those who argued that this area is about Sihak. Um, the pre-Islamic practice, the pre-Islamic practice was that if there is ever a sexual misconduct, there was always one party that gets punished, and that is the female. The, it was considered dishonorable for a female to engage in sexual misconduct. But it was, it was no big deal for the male. The male would often, you know, the, the most that would affect the male is maybe their reputation would get tarnished, they would be branded as a playboy, uh, you know, but whether that actually hurts them or not, um, is um, is questionable. Probably not. What's fascinating is that the earliest reports about 16 doesn't talk about a woman with a woman. It talks about that this was the first time that the Quran comes and says, no, the man if, in fact, there is a conviction, then remember that there is a male partner and the male partner does not get scot off scot-free. So we actually have reports where on Ibn Mas'ud or on Ibn Abbas that it would say that the male, while the female would get, should come under house arrest, that the male must be beaten even with the soles of the, the soles of shoes and other words people should take off their their shoes and, and give the male a good beating in other words that the punishment is not specified 
but that it must be a, sh a punishment that shames the male. And what is remarkable is that you find these reports, again, from various of the successors, especially that tell you that this was the first time that the Quranic legislation or that the first time in Arab society where the idea that the, the male participant has to be punished as well as the female participant. So it doesn't, unlike the, the later Quranic word specifies for in case of intercourse, a hundred lashes, in here, where there's a sexual misconduct, four witnesses, a conviction, but it doesn't specify precisely what the punishment of the male is, although for some reason the most often cited, um, it seems like most authorities understood it as to say, to refer to punishing the male. So for some reason, most of them talk about beating them with what is in your feet, you know, taking up for in the community people to take off their shoes and, and, and beat them on the head with their uh, sandals uh, to shame them. Um, and, you know, then they often say that the beating should not lead to bleeding, that the beating should not lead to death. Uh, then they have some discussions as to, you know, how long the beating should be, but et cetera, et cetera. Which is, when I, again, looked at it, the idea of the community getting together while it, the community would never get together to beat a female, but the community would get together to beat, beat a male that shamed the clan or shamed the tribe for some reason or another. So it made sense that this is the way they understood it, that this is the way that they, they thought, okay, well, when it says to Azuma that it's, it's referring to a, 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 shaming, a, a shaming beating directed at the male participant. But... Notice, فَإِن تَابَ وَأَصْلَحَ فَعَرِضُوا عَنْهُمَا So post-conviction, it specifies, I'm just interested in, again, in how Muhammad Asad repents. It says, if they repent and mend their ways, then leave them alone. That this ought not be the end of the story even for those who have been convicted of sexual misconduct. The other thing that I want to note about 15 and 16, notice a very interesting thing. Grammatically, it is speaking, it is speaking to the collectivity. So it is saying, as to those who do X, Y, and Z, then do this and this to them. Grammatically, it is speaking to the collectivity. No one understood 15 and 16 of all the authorities. No one understood 15 and 16 as addressing itself to the discretion of 
the male spouse. So no one understood 15 and 16 as saying, basically, in your discretion, O husband, if you are satisfied that there are four witnesses, do this and this and that. Everyone understood this as speaking to a judicial process, a process where there are charges, there, uh, there are witnesses, there is a conviction, there is a punishment, there is a post-conviction, and so on. So in other words, that it was speaking itself to the community at large, charging the community with putting into effect certain principles. And the principle is not the house arrest. The principles are the four witnesses. Because that's what was, that's what caught the attention of of everyone who's receiving the Quran, Quranic revelation. While, of course, as you notice, readers, centuries later, often their eyes pass over the four witnesses, and what they focus on is the house arrest. And that's because they are, the, the modern reader is as contextual as the pre-modern reader. You know, every person is, is understanding the text within what, makes what what affects their subjectivities in their own time and period and um but it is if you again if you want to be fair to the author of the quran if you want to understand the intent of the author of the quran then you must look at what the author of the quran was talking about you can't just say well I impose whatever my subjectivities are upon the Quran. Now, just keep in mind this point about addressing itself to the public, a public charge rather than a private charge. Because this is going to be particularly significant when we get to the beating verse, or what is known among modern Muslims as the beating verse. Okay. And then we notice then in 17 and 18, it speaks about Tawbah. And what it says about Tawbah doesn't necessarily limit itself to the Tawbah of those that have committed an offense, whether they were convicted or not. But generally speaking, it or more broadly speaking, it says that proper tawbah, or the most easily accessible tawbah, repentance, those who commit an error, bijahala literally translates out of ignorance, but bijahala doesn't necessarily mean only because of ignorance, but it also could be, bishhala means like, um, because of either ignorance of the law or because of the type of ignorance that comes from foolishness or weakness. So in other words, bishhala could include either you're ignorant of the law or you you're acting in a foolish way or acting in a weak way at a, at a certain time. 
That's also bishahala. That's also included in the expression bishahala. So those who commit an error out of jahala, out of ignorance or weakness, and then yatubuna an min qarib, that they they come to repentance soon after. And for those people, the Quran provides them with a considerable amount of comfort. If if you are among those who find in your heart an eagerness to repent, but those who commit error and persist stubbornly in committing the error. So the differentiation is between an attitude towards the commission of error or the commission of sin, especially those who persist in their wrong ways until they get close to death. Now there is a debate Again, a grammatical debate in the Islamic sources about Hatta is a Hadara Ahadahunal Mout Ahadhumul Hatta is Hadara Ahadhumul Mout. Kala inni tubtul an. Does this mean, as the hadith of the Prophet says, that this means it's a there's a lot of debate about this hadith as well. But a hadith of the Prophet says that basically. What this refers to is that once you are in the final stages of death, then the the door of tawbah, the door of repentance is closed. It's too late. You you can't, you know, wait till the last second and say, okay, now I repent. Or those who rejected the authenticity of the hadith, then it opened a debate as to how about people who persist in committing sin until they, and, and they, they do this quite intentionally and purposefully. So they, they say, okay, I'm going to live my life, I'm going to live it up until, you know, I'm basically reach retirement age or, you know, until I'm 70 years old or I'm 80 years old, and then I'm going to take repentance seriously. And, you know, I, I, of course, the most famous position, because especially in modern Islam, those who are eager to, um, to advocate a more forgiving attitude, uh, focused on the idea that this ayah is referring to those who are literally on their deathbed. Uh, and the other school, which argues that it, it is talking about a, a social dynamic and a social problem, that there are people who gamble and say, I'm going to take a gamble that I'm going to reach old age, and I'm going to live it up until I reach old age, and when I reach old age, then it's time to settle down, and then you know I'm going to say, okay, now it's time for me to... Uh, and the, the more sophisticated discussions of this, the question whether this type of purposeful planning and playing games with Allah is actually true repentance. 
So, you know, it, it, I, I don't, it, you often see it in the most pronounced, perhaps even hypocritical ways in modern Muslim society where it has become quite widespread for women who believe in hijab not to wear hijab as long as they're pre-marriage and as long as they're young and so on and then to wait until they are well into their 50s to say, okay, now it's time for me to wear hijab. And they and this sort of um, my my sense is that it means both. I mean, if obviously, if someone waits until their deathbed to say, "Well, now I repent," well, you know, although ultimately it's all up to Allah, but the chances are is that repentance is not going to be as well as someone who who a you know plays these these games of well as long as i'm young i'm going to take the risk and it, the my experience is that even when these people say that you they repent um there is a real question is whether they repented or whether they're simply unable to commit the sins that they used to commit. So they settle down. And I don't think settling down is repentance. Okay. Then notice, يَا أَيُّهَا الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا لَا يَحِلُّ لَكُمْ أَن تَرِثُ النِّسَاءَ كَرْهَا وَلَا تَعْضُلُوهُنَّ لتذهبوا ببعض ما أتيتموهن إلا أن يأتينا بفاحشة مبينة مبينة وعاشرهن بالمعروف فإن كرهتموهن فعسى أن تكرهوا شيئا ويجعل الله فيه خيرا كثيرا 19 it is not lawful of you to try to become heirs to your wives by holding onto them against their will Neither shall you keep them under your constraint with a view to taking away anything of what you may have given them, unless it be that that they have become guilty in an obvious manner of immoral conduct. This is Muhammad's Asad's translation. However, 19 in actual research was the gateway to unlocking the meaning to 15. When you actually do the research, you discover when you read all the reports that 19 is still talking about the same issue. And that was the, the practice of abusive husbands, abusive in the sense of people who wanted to take advantage of their, their position as husbands, to accuse their wives of immoral sexual conduct, bifahisha. Often, the reason they would accuse them of that was for financial reasons.
So, and they would often, after accusing them, hold on to them, neither divorcing them nor treating them as wives, in order to milk them financially and often milk their tribe financially. Now, why is this important? Because look at the language itself, right? It says, وَلَا لِتَذْهَبُوا بِبَعْضِ مَا إِلَّا So, or مبينة, depending on the Quran. You cannot take away any of what you've given them unless Muhammad Asad translates it as unless they commit unless they commit uh, an obvious an immoral conduct in an obvious manner. But this is a problem because who decides that they committed an immoral conduct in an obvious manner? If you understand it this way, on its own terms, then it's say, okay, well, who decides that they've committed an immoral conduct in an obvious manner that allows you then to take what you've given them? So when they look at this ayah, said, no, this ayah is still talking about the same issue, that unless there are four, when it says, fahisha, mubayyana or mubayyana, depending on the Quran, that what it's talking about is a fahisha that has been proven by four witnesses. And if a woman is convicted of such a fahisha, through four witness, four witnesses, if this conviction is, then you are allowed, and here the, the, is, is, the early Islamic law was quite ex, ex, explicit. You are not allowed to take what is her personal property, and you are not allowed to take what you've given her as gifts, but you are allowed, if it exists, to take back the dowry. And the marriage dissolves. For a husband who has proven the charges with four witnesses. In other words, regulating the often abusive situation where there would be loose accusations against women, especially as they got older or they became undesirable, and then upon the accusation, all their financial rights would be taken away without further ado. That, that was the reality that the Quran was regulating. So that is one thing. Okay. But there is a further issue if a further issue that the language of, of this ayah 
clearly touches upon. Ya ayyuhal ladhina amanu, la yahillu lakum an tarithu nisa'a karha. Now, this could mean that you cannot exert any type of coercion upon them in order to take away what they've inherited, which often is what happened, including bringing false charges against them. But it also could mean that you can't inherit women themselves because the practice in pre-Islam was that if your brother died, you would inherit his wife. You had an option either to marry her or not to marry her, but she would not be released until you exercise your option. If you didn't exercise the option, then she's, she's stuck. The reason people did that is that if it so happened that the wife came from a prestigious tribe, a powerful tribe, a tribe powerful enough to allow the woman any share of inheritance, like Khadija, for instance, who inherited from her ex-husband. In the case of Khadija, it was an ex-husband. But some tribes very influential tribes would not allow women to, to inherit a very big share, but it was a qalam or qalamain, meaning a share or two shares, which amounted maybe to like one or two percent. And what would happen then is that it, if this woman had any money she would become, not for her own worth, but because of her money, whoever inherits her, if she's a widow, would want to hold on to her until she relinquishes all her financial entitlements. And then he would say, okay, I'm going to release you. So, but the evidence is, is that this ayah came and prohibited both kinds of conduct. It prohibited the conduct where people would bring charges just to extort money. And basically, if you brought a if you bring a charge and you're and uh, if you produce four witnesses and there's a conviction, the marriage dissolves and it's, there's a regulated process as to what happens then. And if you bring charges and you're unable to bring four, four witnesses, there's going to be ilian and the marriage still dissolves, but you get nothing at all. So, at the same time, the Quran ended the practice of inheriting widows. You could not inherit. The women no longer became part of what were inherited in families. And it's quite clear that after Surah Al-Nisa, that that practice, anyone that entered Islam could no longer inherit women themselves.
But 19 had a further function, and that is it, and this is bolstered by the teachings of the Prophet والسلام, about 19. That the Prophet والسلام, emphasized that holding on to a wife, that you don't treat according to ma'roof. Ma'roof is, is kindness and generosity. That simply holding on to a woman for whatever reasons, whether the reasons are financial or the reasons are social pressure or the reasons are that you don't want to alienate her family or you you know you're employed by her in 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 the trade of her family you work in her family's trade so holding on to a wife for reasons whatever these reasons are ulterior motives but you are not treating her according to maruf is a sin and we have reports of men coming to the prophet and saying I, I I cannot treat my wife. My my feelings are such that I cannot treat my wife as a wife. And the Prophet says, if you want to avoid them, if you do not want to incur sin, then you must release her. Now, of course, it doesn't make it an obligation because you can imagine the consequences in a society where marriage is everything. If, if, if it becomes an obligation or a duty for, upon men to divorce any wife that they don't have feelings for anymore, the social consequences that, of that would be devastating. But it, the idea of holding on to a woman in a marriage for ulterior motives was made an issue through this revelation. The fourth lesson, which we find exemplified in the Sira time and again through various narratives, and that is, فَإِن كَرِهْتُمُوهُنَّ فَعَسَى أَن تَكْرَهُوا شَيْئًا وَيَجْعَلَ اللَّهُ فِيهِ خَيْرًا كَثِيرًا That, remember, even if, now, so let's say you don't, you don't have ulterior motives. It's not that you're holding on to a woman because you are benefiting of the relationship or for any financial reasons or prestige reasons or whatever. But the problem here is the opposite, is that you no longer feel for this woman. And the, the point that I'm making about the seerah is that the, we find the Prophet, 
this message emphasized the message that you find in, in here that remember that just because your feelings have cooled off or just because you are you no longer feel the passion remember that Allah that you cannot forget Allah out of the equation that although you might no longer have these feelings but in fact they might be the source of blessing for you source of goodness for you and we have many narratives in which and interestingly it's applied by the prophet both to men and women where women come to the prophet and say i don't care for my husband anymore i want a divorce and the prophet recites to them this verse and say well you know even if you don't feel for them maybe they're a source of blessing for you but if they insist upon it in several riwayat then the the, the prophet brings the husband and says okay well give him back his dowry and you're released and we also have the opposite where men come to the prophet and say you know i don't feel anything for my wife anymore i want to leave her and the prophet recites this verse and says you know she might be the source of all blessings for you she might be khair kathir the the source of goodness for you think again now what interests me as a student of the quran here is that the injection for the first time in the entire discourse of while marriage was not placed in the hands issues of marriage and divorce was not like in christianity placed in the hands of an ecclesiastical i can't hear myself so i sometimes i'm not sure how i'm pronouncing things ecclesiastical power it's church power while it wasn't placed in the hands of a church to exercise God's will, it was still left in the hands of delegated to individual agency. But it injected the entire narrative with the ethics of divinity, that you have to think of God. It's not just about your feelings or your incentives, or your culture, or your habits. This is the way we we have to, I mean, you know, it's very easy to say, well, just read the Quran and just pay attention to just the language. But you miss a considerable amount of richness because to everything in the world, there's a context. And the Quran itself refers to this context. Yeah, we can we can apply the language universally, but we can do so only after having studied the context first to understand the universal trajectories of the language. So now that I understand this, then I can tell myself, okay, well, Then I can tell myself, 
Okay, so there is a there is the way that the Quran deals with these actual social problems, combating easy, unsubstantiated false accusations, combating exploitative dynamics within a marriage where someone takes advantage of someone in order to make financial gains or other type of material gains. Teaching an element of morality and caution that don't just follow your feelings. It's not about simply your feelings. I like or I don't like. Think of God and what God wants and that Think of the fact that the ma'roof is a moral obligation and think of your reward with Allah and not simply of what you desire. But you're, It's very much like the whole issue of polygamy. There is a cap to four, but yet, even when it caps at four, it gives you a moral instruction. When it, if you fear inequity among orphans and exercise that discretion within, that, within these ethical parameters. The problem is, is that when we come and we, anytime the Quran gives us the ethical parameters, we say, okay, yeah, yeah, we, we don't have energy to, to pay attention to that. Just give us the nuts and bolts. Just give us the black letter law. We'll implement that and forget everything else. It doesn't work. Then 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 the Quran becomes like a, a normative potential in your midst that's unfulfilled. Okay. And this is underscored, the message in 19 is underscored in 20. وَإِنْ أَرَدْتُمْ إِسْتِبْدَالَ زَوْجٍ مَكَانَ زَوْجٍ وَآتَيْتُمْ أَحَدَاهُنَّ قِنْطَارًا فَلَا تَأْخُذُوا مِنْهُ شَيْئًا أَتَأْخُذُونَهُ بُهْتَانًا وَإِثْمًا مُبِينًا وَكَيْفَ تَأْخُذُونَهُ قَدْ أَفْضَى بَعْضُكُمْ إِلَى بَعْضٍ this is now 20 and 21. So it comes and says, okay, now, if all else fails, you don't want to abuse anyone and you listen to God's message and you ask the question, am I in this marriage for material reasons? Because if you are, that's wrong. You, you're, you're not allowed to lie to someone and say, I love you, while you actually, you're benefiting from them, but you actually don't love them. You, you can't lie. You can treat them as ma'roof, but you can't lie. So you, you ask yourself these questions, and you say, well, even if I perhaps, no, I don't have any ulterior motives, but I just don't care for this person anymore, and you went into a conscientious pause and you you know did your homework and said okay you know no like the like the women who would come to the prophet say no i i i know but i just can't stand the man i i need to end the marriage and so you've decided okay no i i 
want to end the marriage. And then another contextual reform is that it was quite common that in divorces, leave alone divorces if, if, if it's initiated by the woman, if the woman is the one that's demanding divorce, then forget it. But even in divorces that where the woman is objecting to the divorce, the regular practice, the habitual practice, pre-Islamic practice, is that you consider, now I've left this woman, all her financial affairs are now the responsibility of her family or her new husband. Part of leaving the woman is that I'm entitled to take everything I've given the woman. And that was the regular practice. That you divorce, but you also retrieve. And often husbands would say, I intend to divorce you, but I will not actually release you unless I first make sure I get whatever they, they want to get. And again, in Ayah 20, that comes to an end because it says if you've given them as much as a kantar, you are not allowed to take it back. Whatever you've given, you've given. And it describes this process, the, 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 the dynamics, the social dynamics in which men would take what they've given often even, you know, gifts, even clothes, interestingly enough, because textile was worth something, and so they would take the clothes and sell them, uh, or give them to their the wife that comes in, because, again, textiles, people back then, you know, they, 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 they would resaw clothes and reformulate clothes to fit all sizes. Um, and it describes that that process of taking as buhtan wa ithman mubina, a grave sin. And so, and that re remarkably and surprisingly, in my opinion, it, it does seem that that Quranic project is far more successful because if there is taking, at least we it wasn't, we don't find evidence. I mean, what the, the sources simply say that it, uh, it became understood that the property of the woman is the property of the woman, etc. And we don't have, unlike the issue of Miras, where jurists are lamenting how people are ignoring the Quran. The, the jurists are lamenting that the, that the fact that men don't give women their share of inheritance, you know, 500 centuries after the Quran is revealed, 600 centuries, 800 centuries, but we don't have jurists lamenting the violation of this part of the Quran. That, of course, doesn't mean it didn't happen. It just means that, you know, you, you can fill in the blanks. It means either they weren't aware of it, or if, even if they were aware of it, they didn't think it was a social problem. I, I don't know. But we, we just... 
what all I'm saying is that it it they didn't record the social resistance to that. The impression they give you is that men respected that prescription fairly right away, whether that prescri- that impression is right or wrong. But what is also significant here is that it doesn't just describe the taking as buhtan and a grave sin. And buhtan is, is a form of aggression. I mean, and, and, and um, um, deceiving. It's, it's like dishonesty. So it, it brands it as highly immoral. But it then reminds this society that God considers a marital covenant, a mithaq ghaliz, a very heavy, a, 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 a covenant is a mithaq. Mithaq ghaliz is a very heavy covenant. In theology and law, If you break a heavy covenant, whatever the heavy covenant is for, without just cause, however the just cause is defined, and God is the one that decides what's just cause or not, that is considered a sin. So if you if you look up the subject of Mithaq Ghaliz, in books of theology in particular, they'll tell you, oh, a mithaq ghaliz means that's a very heavy covenant and it cannot simply be broken willy-nilly. It cannot be simply broken because you just feel like it. That it is effectively a promise made to God. Now, is it Absurd to suggest, is it absurd to suggest that because of the institutions of patriarchy, although men understood that Mithaq Ghaliz, a heavy covenant, cannot be broken without it being a sin, but when it came, although they read the Quran referring to marriage as a Mithaq Ghaliz, They couldn't get themselves to think that if you just divorce your wife for no reason, they couldn't get themselves to think or to preach that you're committing a sin. Although, I think a a conscientious pause, most, even the most patriarchal men, men would say, yeah, you know, you shouldn't do it. But here it's called Mithaqaliz. You want proof of that? Okay. You want to see proof of that? Is that when it comes to saying whether a woman can demand a divorce for no reason, here they don't have a problem remembering the Mithaqaliz. And you'll find in books, tons of books, 
they'll remind the woman that it is a grave sin to rebel against a good husband, by good husband meaning a husband who pays the bills, basically, and, and demand a divorce for no good reason. And they'll say, you know, remember, this is a misagalis, and but they don't have the same refrain when it comes to men. There are a lot of people that like to pretend that they can read the Quran objectively without their subjectivities intervening in the interpretive dynamic. But human beings, they can strive at objectivity. And as long as they are conscientious and honest about it, in other words, they're deliberate. They're saying, yeah, I, I am aware of, of my... But I am, I, my goal is to, to the best of my ability, not to respect my own objectivities, but the objectivities of the author of the Quran, to the extent I can understand them, with a great deal of humility. But there are certain parts when it comes to the Quran where there is, where you see a systematic failure to challenge the subjectivities of the interpreter of the text. And this is one of them. In Mithaq Ali's, most Jews didn't have a problem with saying it's a grave sin if you take anything you've given a woman just because you're divorcing her. You're not allowed to. And most jurists didn't have a problem with saying, you can't claim, well, I'm taking it because she committed an immoral conduct. Most jurists said, if you don't have four witnesses, then you can't take it back. Most jurists said that it's not enough that you have four witnesses, but it must be established in a court of law. So you can't say, well, you know, my four brothers witnessed her immoral conduct, so I'm taking her property. But where they did have a problem is to actually say there are ethical constraints when it comes to male-instituted or male-initiated divorces. That they, they... they couldn't swallow. So it is not unusual in very traditional settings and even the abusive imam cultures that you find in some circles where, you know, say, well, you know, you can divorce a woman for no cause, no reason, and take another, you know, just, just because you got bored with her. You know, but that is very inconsistent with the language of the Quran of a mithaq ghalis. And that's something important to remember. Before we take a, a break, notice also 21 and 22 that it was quite common for 
in pre-Islam for males to first inherit the wives, their, their stepmothers, to first inherit their stepmothers and then marry their stepmothers. That was quite a common practice and it was engaged in to keep the wealth within the tribe or within the clan. So it was a very tribal thing. And we even have you know, some forms of just jealousy that this woman used to belong to my father and that I, I can't bear the idea of this woman now going to any other man other than my father. So either I marry her or I never exercise an option one way or the other about her. And the first, the, the, if you look at 20, sorry, um, yeah, 22 and 23, is that the Quran comes and clearly among even the tribes where it was possible to marry um, ants, maternal ants especially, although rare, but it happened. Um, there, in some tribes, you, people married their nieces or their um, um, nephews, normally the, the daughter of a brother or the daughter of a sister. Um, but notice also and وَأَخَوَاتُكُمْ مِنَ الرِّضَاءَ So your suckling brothers or sisters, those who had suckled from the same mother. But notice وَرَبَائِبُكُمْ أَلَّاتِ فِي حُجُورِكُمْ مِن نِسَائِكُمُ اللَّاتِ دَخَلْتُمْ بِهِنْ فَإِنْ لَمْ تَكُونُوا دَخَلْتُمْ بِهِنْ فَلَا جُنَاحَ عَلَيْكُمْ وَحَلَائِلُ أَبْنَائِكُمْ الَّذِينَ مِنْ أَصْلَابِكُمْ وَأَنْ تَجْمَعُوا بَيْنَ الْأُخْتَيْنِ إِلَّا مَا قَدْ سَلَفْ إِنَّ اللَّهَ كَانَ غَفُورًا رَحِيمًا So 23, the, the, the second part of 23. So, so milk sisters, mothers of your wives, that, that's not surprising for us today. And your stepdaughters, who are your foster children, is the way Muhammad Assad translates it, which is actually quite accurate. Born of your wives with you, whom you have consummated your marriage. But if you have not consummated your marriage, then it's, then it's okay. So in other words, for the first time, and this was the first time in, in among this society. The Quran came and said, well, it's not just you can't marry your stepmothers, but you can't marry your stepdaughters. Of course, in most marriages, they're consummated, and that's why you're ra raising the stepdaughter. But it came and said, you can't marry your stepchildren. And that was, by the way, extended from stepdaughters to uh stepsons as well and 
you cannot marry two sisters. And then notice, إِلَّا مَا سَلَفْ إِلَّا مَا قَدْ سَلَفْ That except, why did it need, the exception is, well, let's see how Muhammad Asa translates it. Um, okay. But what is past is past. So he translated what is past. So except for what has been done in the past, why did you need that exception? Because of how prevalent it was to marry two sisters. Many people had married two sisters. And often you would marry the sisters together at the same um, wedding. So you come and you actually propose to the two sisters and the practice of marrying stepdaughters was also very widespread um, and so it and also the, the the few people that had married their aunts and, and you know strange things like that which you find found in some Arab tribes If you look at the relationships that the Quran challenges, there are relationships that clearly relate to blood, you know, like marrying your sister or marrying your, your aunt and so on. But especially relationships where you combine, you marry two sisters together, relationships you marry a, your stepmother or you marry your stepdaughter these were relationships of unequal power often in every case I've looked at it was often the person doing the marrying was from a dominant powerful tribe or family marrying into a weak tribe or family and it is very interesting to me that among the things that the Quran comes and says, no more, are these relationships that had the overwhelming tone of vulnerability. Okay, let, let's take a short break. And Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Um, you know, there, there is no audience here other than Sharif and Grace, and uh, so I, I can't uh, feed off the vibe of the people here in sensing whether I'm explaining things well or not. Uh, in the break, Grace uh, reminded me of a message we got from our good uh, friend Steve uh, who was confused by my explanation of um, the verse on polygamy. And his questions relating to the issue of um, marrying orphans. So let me see if I can restate it um, 
in less confusing ways. So if we, before we go on, let's just pause. What the sources tell you is that the reference in the Quranic verse to orphans primarily had to do with marrying orphans themselves. And so how would that happen? Well, apparently the practice was is that you would take in orphans into your family. And you could you don't necessarily take in orphans that are nieces or nephews or not even necessarily relatives, but the 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 evidence is that people tended to take in orphans from their own tribe or orphans that had a relation, a clan relationship, um, generally speaking. And they would raise these orphans. And then once they reached a age of marriage, they would actually marry these orphans that they raised. So you could take in 10 orphans, and the orphans could be a family relationship or not a family relationship. Was it, would, would it happen that an uncle would marry a niece? It did happen in pre-Islamic culture until the Quranic came and prohibited that, of uncles marrying their nieces, period. But the most common form was not uncle taking in nieces as orphans and raising them and marrying them. The more common form was that of you take in, let's say, five, ten, whatever number of orphans within your tribe, within your clan, just depending, tribe or clan, and then you raise them, and then you marry them once you, they reach an age of maturity. Now, there is a question of, of unequal power, because if you've raised the orphan, and then you tell the orphan, I plan to marry you, there is a real question as to whether there is proper volition. Um, it, it's, I mean, it, it's, um, uh, th there are a hadith that don't come out to outright to prohibit the practice, even if the orphan is, is not like a niece or anything, anything like that, but just, uh, let's say, an orphan of a neighbor that is from your same tribe. Um, but that focuses on the issue of whether they, they're, pro they can pro they're properly consenting or not. Um, but the reason that, that arguably this would happen is that it was seen as, um, since they're orphans, they have, they're orphans, they have that stigma of being orphans, and so they're not desirable marital material. And the person who would raise the orphan would see himself as doing something benevolent by marrying the orphans that he raised. Th that was sort of the, the, 
and that according to these same tradition sources, traditional sources, and I'm talking about even sources like Ibn Kathir and Tabari, you find it in, in this material. Um, they would tell you that what the, the Quran is saying is that, well, don't marry more than four orphans you've raised. This, to me, and it's clear that this, this point didn't come across, that this to me seems problematic because if the purpose of the Quran is to say don't marry more than four wives, why would it deal with such a narrow entry point? In order to say don't marry more than four wives, the way it comes at it is by addressing a fairly marginal practice and that is people marrying six orphans that they've raised or people marrying eight orphans that they've raised or 10 orphans that they've raised. How often did that happen? And the answer is not that often. I mean, most people would take care of orphans and not marry them. Which lends credence to the second interpretation of this ayah, not the traditional interpretation, not the interpretation that you find in Tabari that says that basically what this ayah is saying is that if you fear, when you marry the orphans that you've raised, if you fear inequity, then limit yourself to four, which would make it a very narrow ayah. I think that the ayah is addressing a larger issue. And the larger issue is that in order to take care of orphans, like what the Prophet ﷺ did, you have a society where there are a lot of mothers that become widowed. And they have children. And you don't want, there, there's, they have mothers, so you can't, you're not going to take the orphan you, from the mother. So how are you going to take care of the orphan? You marry the mother. And so what would happen is that in order to take care of these children, people would marry, you know, of course these are well-off people, but they would, the, the, the way they would step into the picture, most of these orphans still had mothers. I mean, the, it was a more rare circumstance is what like the prophet was when he lost his, both his mother and father. But in most situations, they, they had lost just the father. So they would actually marry multiple wives in order to take care of the children. And there is an interpretive question. Is the Quran saying, is Allah saying, I know that you are marrying multiple wives 
because you fear inequity with orphans, that you, you want to make sure orphans are taken care of, so you're marrying multiple wives, but limit yourselves to four wives? Or is the Quran saying, limit yourself to one wife unless you need to take care of, care of orphans, then marry up to four wives? Is this point? Do you guys, is this clear? I, you know, you guys, is this clear? So, is the Quran is the Quran saying? I God is saying I know that the reason you are engaging in polygamous marriages is because you want to take care of orphans, but limit yourself to four, or is the Quran saying no? Limit yourself to one, but. Marry more than one if you need to take care of orphans. And what I was saying is that I think that if you look at the language, if you look at the grammar, if you look at the context, it is the second interpretation that makes the most sense. Again, I have very serious doubts about the traditional narrative that says that people were marrying multiple orphans that they've raised, and that's the point. Because it's just such a narrow issue, a marginal issue. So if then it's talking about not, and, and it doesn't address the, 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 the reality that most orphans had mothers, but just didn't have fathers. That was the problem. That, that was the most common situation. The father is dead. And quite often, unless you are from a well-off family, if you are a widow and you have children, your poor marriage material. Now, yeah, we do have some reports of people who volunteer to marry eight women just to take care of their children. And it was sort of understood that, yeah, they, they, they didn't even care about how the woman looked like. They would hear that such and such has been martyred or such and such died on a trip to Syria and say, I, you know, communicate this marriage offer to his mother and the children are my children now. And, and, but taking the Quranic preference or taking the way that the Quran often assumes a single wife and taking what the Quran says about the inability of men to be fair to multiple wives, then that gives weight to the second interpretation that basically the, the Quran is saying that limit yourselves to one wives and the situation in which you should consider more than one wife is situation where there are orphans that need to be taken care of, but under no circumstance marry more than four. And there is a further issue which I sort of mentioned just in passing, 
is it is the Quran address it, the Quran is speaking to elect- collectivity it it in very much like the ayah on those who commit immoral sexual conduct it, you know and then they should bring four witnesses etc is the Quran talking to the state or to the polity at large or is the Quran addressing itself to an issue of individual discretion and because of patriarchy and because of various historical circumstances that debate never got vetted out everyone assumed that it is basically leaving it up to the individual male whether there's a problem with orphans or no problem with orphans to basically basically exercise this judgment i i but and and what prevents this discourse is from taking place is the overwhelming looming shadow of colonialism that you know muslims have been robbed everything about their identity so are we really doing this because of a Quranic impetus or are we doing this just to be like everyone else? Um, and, you know, I don't have an answer to how do we ever overcome the, the, the looming complex of, of colonialism because it, it just, it pervades everything. But I, I suspect, you know, I'm not in favor of anything that comes from, imposed from the outside. I'm not in favor of anything that is, is a, 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 quote-unquote, a reform instituted by some despot or, or dictator, regardless of how they enlightened they claim they are. It, I think that narrative must be driven by women themselves. Um, It's women who has to take hold of that Quranic narrative and read the sources and make the arguments, and it has to be an internally generated. And every internally generated dynamic is slow and painful. It, it, you know, dictators switch a, 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 you know, flip a switch, but the consequences, the, 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 the fallout from dictatorship is horrendous. It's not worth whatever reform is instituted. But the organic process of reform, uh, where, you, where you actually persuade people, um, the growing pains are worth it. Because part of what we learn through this dynamic is to pay very careful attention to Quranic scholarship, to invest in Quranic scholarship, to, uh, to debate with one another over Quranic scholarship, to be forced to convince one another. And if we can't convince one another, then we don't move forward. I mean, it's part of maturing as a people. That's part of what makes Muslims so backwards is we we, ever since we've been robbed our autonomy we've lost the art of convincing one another so we don't know how to talk to one another we only know how to 
hurt one another or how to you know dominate one another but but the, the like everything else it's it's growing pains it's a it's a you it, there is no sh, no shortcuts um But even you know, I've never it's, it, all these years, and I've I've never heard even a a well informed discourse on the relationship between what the Quran says about orphans and what the Quran says about polygamy. Uh, I mean, it's sort of something that people just completely overlook and and move on, um, which is very problematic if we're taking this book seriously. Okay. Okay, now let's um, move on to 24. So, this is again Muhammad Asad's translation. Forbidden to you are all married women, other than those whom you rightfully possess. Those who you literally within your right hands. Uh, but meaning you have a right to through wedlock, except, um, sorry, forbidden to you are all married women other than those who you rightly possess through wedlock, that is God's ordinance binding upon you. Unlawful to you are all women beyond these for you to seek out offering them of your possessions, taking them in honest wedlock and not in fornication. For and then let's add 25 because it's closely related. And as for those who, owing to circumstance, are not in a position to marry free-believing women, let them marry believing maidens from among those who your right, ha your right hands possess. And God knows all about your faith. Each one of you is an issue of the other. Ba'adukum min ba'd. And I'm going to focus on this. Marry them. So marry them with their people's leave, with their family's leave, and give them their dowers in an equitable manner, there being women who give themselves an honest wedlock and not in fornication, nor as secret love companions. Uh, and when they are married and therefore become guilty of immoral conduct, they shall be liable to have the penalty to which free married women are liable. Okay, 
So, so first, um, so emphasizes, and this is twenty five and, and 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 twenty sorry twenty four and twenty five. that the first rule is that sexual relations beyond marriage is not allowed. And, and this applies, and this is, again, the part where the Quranic moment, the Quranic reform comes in, and this applies both to a free woman and a maiden or a, a, what the Quran describes as a or a slave. The preference, as 26 makes clear, is that you do not marry slave girls but that you marry a free woman but if you are unable to marry a free woman then it is permissible to marry a slave girl And in the Muhammad Asad's translation, he and, and I'll comment on this. The critical thing is that a slave girl that you own, and that in all cases, Adam ittakhad al khidn. Al khidn is a a love or a, a secret lover. Now, Muhammad, the way Muhammad Asad translates this, the, the language itself, the, the grammatical analysis of the language, can clearly mean that whether free or slave, you must be married to that person. And there is a preference that you marry free women, the, the part of this is that once you marry a slave, which is not the preferred thing, what if a, and it's preferred that if you marry someone that you actually free them, because how can a relationship continue being married to your own slave? How could this be your wife and a slave at the same time? Uh, the answer usually given to this is, well, in Islam, you know, you have to treat a slave like you treat a member of the family. You have to give them, you have to dress as you dress. You have to eat as you eat. You have to have the same equal financial rights. 
But even then, just as a matter of morals, and once that woman bears you a child, then that's automatic freedom. Um, and do, do we have examples of people who own slaves that propose to the slave girl and the slave girl refused to marry them? Yes, we do have examples of that. I mean, they're, they're throughout Islamic history and with some very colorful love stories that go go along with that, with that. Um, if you if you want to read a lot of that, read Talk al Hamama or the the Ring of the Dove by Ibn Hazm, um, who reports, or, or of course, um, um, uh, what's um, uh, the name of the book is escaping me. Um, can't remember the name of the book. There's Al-Aghani, Kitab Al-Aghani. It's a massive compendium full of um, these narratives. Now, however, you must be aware that within books of tradition, there are scholars who took who shows a very patriarchal interpretation to these verses. And the interpretation that they chose is marry free women, and if you cannot, then marry slave girls that you do not own. Why did they choose this interpretation? Because they wanted to maintain that you can have sexual relations with a slave girl that you own even if you're not married to her. Of course, if you can... So if you own a slave girl, they, they argued that you can have sex with her, so why marry her? So they chose to understand these same verses as saying either marry free women or marry a slave girl that you do not own. But of course, that creates a problem for these scholars. One of the big issues, this is before the age of DNA, DNA, is ikhtilat al-ansab, right? Is that in Islamic law, if someone, if a woman gets pregnant, we want to know who the father is. Well, if owners can have sexual relations with their slave girl without marriage, and the Quran is saying to someone, well, go and marry slave girls, if you cannot marry free women. So you're marrying a woman who, at the same time, you don't own this woman. You're, she's owned by someone else. So does this mean that at the same time she's your wife, her master can be having sex with her, and if she gets pregnant, you don't know 
if she's pregnant with your child or the child of her master. And these scholars usually don't have a response to that. So what interested me at this point, well, what can we glean from history? And I am convinced that what we clearly see in historical practice is that you rarely find proof that someone would simply marry, buy a slave girl and think they're entitled to have sex with her without marriage. There is an issue in Islamic law as to whether a slave girl that you marry counts as one of the four or not. But that's a, that's a separate legal discussion and a separate legal debate. But the sort of free sex proponents never have a response. Well, if what would marriage to a slave girl mean if she marries an outside person or marries a fellow slave, some of them, to be fair, some of them said that once she's married, then the right of her slave to have a sexual access to her terminates. But why would a slave agree to his slave marrying someone if that will terminate their... I mean, why would you do that? So, although the the... Um, you hear of those who make the assumption that slavery meant sexual access and mind you, non-coercion, non-coercively, whatever that means, right? Because they always say, as long as there's no coercion is included. So, you know, I, I, yeah, it, it, it confounds me. But the language itself supports the way Ahmad Assad translates this, as well as I'm convinced the historical practice itself supports that as well. That And the Prophet himself, as we read before in Ahmad Assad's, um, Muhammad Assad's footnote, it, 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 slavery never meant simply sexual access. So let, let's go back. So, and when you look at the context of this, the prohibition, the, especially the thing that a lot of modern Muslims overlook the Quranic expression, muttakhizati akhdan, the ethical focus here is on banning secret lovers. Secret relationships that are include sexual relationships, but in which when people are dumped or the relation is terminated, there 
is no recourse to rights. There is no protection of rights or entitlements because it is a secret relationship in which the family plays no part, in which the, the constraints that exist to prevent abuse do not exist. And if you notice, although this does, marry them by the permission of their families. This doesn't mean that the, the, the question of whether the consent of the, uh, because the consent of a guardian is necessary for the marriage to be valid is a separate legal question. But the ethical teaching is don't marry these women behind their family's back. Don't marry them secretly. Don't, because often what would, what would happen is even if lovers are uncovered, they would say, well, we got married, but in secret. I'm saying this especially in reference to a lot of the modern practice, um, where, you know, the, the question comes up, these imams that take on this secret wife and that secret wife and and so on, and then the question, well, is it proper, is it halal, not halal? Regardless of the technicalities of the law, because often what these imams rely on is that they'll tell you, well, you know, this jurist said, you know, you don't need witnesses. Uh, um, an offer and acceptance and a dowry is, is, is all you need. But the, the Quranic moral norm that the Quran wanted to institute in society is especially these secret relationships that have a high potential for abuse. Whether an most often, the high potential of abuse occurs when the family is not, and there is no recourse for a woman or for uh, who is abused within a relationship. And so it's like coming in and saying all relationships have to be in the open. The preference because what the preference with slaves is that you free them, and that's the clear moral preference. So the preference could not be that you marry slaves. The preference is always that you free a slave. But if for one whatever reason you cannot marry a free woman, and then the second option is a valid open marriage to a slave who, if you understand what an Islamic marriage about, as you, you find written in hundred sources, is that to, it, it is, it, so they used to describe it as against uh, the, the proper manners of, um, uh, against husnul khuluq, that it is it sort of uh, um, not good character to marry someone who remains in a slave status. 
So in other words, if you marry them, if you're of decent moral character, you free them. But anyway, if they bear you a child, they're going to become free anyway. Um, now, this then notice that with 25 we are still on this theme of sexual misconduct because in 25 it comes and circles back and says and in the case of sexual misconduct committed by someone in slave status whatever the punishment is it's always half why is it half because of the social circumstance mitigates their criminal culpability there is an intensive debate that we can't resolve about here when it talks when it says the second part and when they are in and thereafter become guilty of immoral conduct they shall be liable to have penalty to which a free married woman are liable is it then saying under the same restrictions of four witnesses and remember that this revelation is before the revelation which talks about a hundred lashes in the case of intercourse. So what does half of punishment mean in this circumstance? So most jurors said the, the same rule applies of four witnesses so that the sexual misconduct. And what if the slave commits a sexual misconduct who's not married? Does the same rule apply of half the penalty or not? These are all complicated legal issues that come up in discussion. But as far as the, the Quranic narrative here is concerned, again, I'm, I I'm hope that I'm not can, that I, I feel un, a lot of times, you know, you, you, the, the details of the amount of discussions and, and on, on the nitty-gritty details overwhelm you. So you try to go, always go back and summarize the, the fundamentals, the essential point, points, because the interpretive, um, uh, the, the, in, the interpretive body that grows around the verse is always far more complex than the verse itself. So, Resummarize again. Clearly, what everyone agrees on is that this these verses come in and say something that the already is well known in, from other revelations of the Quran. So, in other words, something that or that that sexual sexual conduct outside of a marital relationship is haram. There is disagreement as to whether 
sex with a slave is sexual outside a legitimate relationship. School that I reject that says, well, with a free woman, you need to marry her. With a slave, it's enough that you own her. For reasons I explained, I reject that school. I think that the Quran is quite clear. It's saying in both situations, you need marriage. Second point, because otherwise we, we actually would have a lot of problems of why we even have this revelation. But so you need marriage, whether it's a free woman or a slave that you own. The preference, because the preference is always that you free, al-itq is always, remember that al-itq is fakkuraqaba, that, that is actually what will release your neck from hell. And anyway, so if you're unable, usually, if you're unable to afford the dowry of a free woman and so you end up marrying your slave as a second option, that's fine. There is nothing in the Quran that seems to, to that even hints that this wouldn't count as one of the four. I mean, I, I, I don't even understand that debate. Those who say, oh, does it count as one of the four marriages or it doesn't count. I think it clearly counts. I mean, there's there's nothing in the Quran that's, uh, that um, uh, that get, that even n needs for us or that may, would make us need to get into that debate. But the critical another critical issue that relationships respectful moral relationships must be in the open where rights are guaranteed and abuse is prevented that doesn't mean that a marriage is only valid if you have a big wedding you know it doesn't mean that these the it that the critical issue is relationships in which abuse would be possible, relationships in which the sanctity of marriage, of a marital relationship, would not be honored. Instead of it being a methakalese, it could become just a casual relationship as we often see in the societies we live in. I mean, Often people, you know, think it's more serious to to share information about how much money they make, or they think it is that's more private than having sex with each other, which is, you know, they think it's like it's bizarre. It's it's truly bizarre. I mean, sharing the most intimate details about each other's bodies and and fluids and whatever else uh, is less personal than seeing how, 
what my income is. It's, it's bizarre, truly bizarre. Um, but this, this is the type of casualness that ultimately the Quran is talking about, that, that, that you, it would become sort of a, a, a casual thing. Secret relationships are often open to abuse because they can be terminated at will, terminated whenever inconvenient. And from experience, I can tell you that in cases I was involved in, where, you know, someone gets stuck with all the bills and, uh, and all the, and, and because there was no, no legal recourse, no way to be able to actually get this person to carry their burden or their share of the of the of the financial expenses. And then third is the idea that for at least in the case of married slave women that because slavery itself is a mitigating circumstance it is not an ideal situation. It is in itself a mitigating circumstance. Whatever culpability exists for sexual misconduct, the penalty is always half of what would be due to a free woman. I think that the lesson behind that is precisely that point that slavery is a mitigating circumstance. The tendency in this society or in that society at the time was to punish the weak the harshest. And the Quran comes and flips that on its head. And it says this vulnerable element of society actually is not to punish the harshest. It is punished half of what normal members of society are punished. If you don't like that freedom, the, the answer is always in the Quran is freedom. Okay. It's nine ten, so let's see. Okay. Now notice. 26, 27, 28. These ayats provide what you could call the interpretive hue for these verses. God wants to make clear to you the righteous ways of life and 
أن يتوب عليكم ويريد ويريد الذين يتبعون الشهوات أن تميلوا ميلا عظيما. But those who um, those who follow their lusts. What is the problem with those who follow their lusts? And tamilu mailan azima is to that you drift away from the path of a principled living. To me, that anchors the way I approach the ethics of the verses that preceded it. So when I'm thinking of the institution of marriage and secrecy in marriage and secret relationships and casual relationships, which has been preceded with Allah telling me that this is a weighty covenant, that the relationship between you, between husband and wife, is a weighty covenant, then Allah is reminding me that this is a, when there is a relationship between male and female, it ought to be based on a mithaqalis, on a weighty covenant in which God becomes a partner in this relationship. What is the interpretive anchor and the interpretive guideline is that to read the Quranic norms to bolster the idea of a principled life that while responsive to people's sexual needs, but the honors a covenant, a serious covenantal relationship between male and female when they commit to one another. And All relationships that are based on simple lust without serious commitment or based on other factors that has nothing to do with Quranic ethics could be a pass to antamilu maylan azima that you would drift away so the Quran is, note here, the Quran is not laying out a code of law. It is engaging in a moral education. So, And God wants to lighten your burdens for Human beings have been created weak. So at the same time that Allah is reminding me, is telling me, okay, I've given you these, these instructions. Instructions about not marrying your nieces, your nephews, about not marrying your stepdaughters, your stepmothers. I'm giving you all these, you know, all this, this, this long narrative of instructions, even going back to about orphans and polygamy and etc., and about when it comes to sexual relations, you know, make it out and make it out in the open, make it decent, make it based on commitment. Um, you know, 
remember that an ideal type of relationship is when the both parties are free people that you, you don't have a relationship of adhesion where someone is basically forced to be with someone else like in a uh, that's not the ideal that's not what what is most pleasing to god most pleasing is free autonomous relationship based on ma'roof based on benevolence and kindness etc etc and then allah comes and anchors this and says remember there is a path of those who respond to just lust and that path is dangerous but also the path of those who expect human beings to be like what was very well known to Islam at the time, and that's the Catholic creed of abstinence. There's also the path of those who require human beings to be superhuman. And human beings were not created capable of so what the lesson anchored in the entire decade of Meccan Quran, the Mizan, the balance. If you approach these verses as if you are kid reading a code of law, you end up doing exactly what you find some jurists doing, saying, well, you know, uh, Let's not look at the morality of slavery. Let's not look at, you know, they, they ignore what Mithak Ghaliz is. They ignore what the issue about orphans and plea. But if you anchor it in a, a moral trajectory, in Allah being a moral teacher to us, I think you get a very different taste to the narrative. Which will even come even uh, a, a lot, uh, much of what is going to come will even underscore this even further. Okay, you read just uh, you, this is uh, you that God wants to lighten your burdens. That if you want to understand Allah, Allah's not out to add to your burdens. Allah is light. As Again, as an interpreter of the Quran, do you lighten burdens? Or do you, of course, do you, do you add to people's burdens? Or do you, for every burden that you argue is necessary, is it carefully measured to what God's moral objectives are. Because it's a very serious responsibility. If God wants to lighten people's burdens and you do the opposite. Do you, do you see as an, an interpretive matter, it's a very big point. Allah can't tell you that Allah wants to lighten your burdens and you just willy-nilly act to do the opposite. Okay, then twenty nine, and I will close with twenty nine because it's um, twenty nine and thirty. Okay, 
so again underscoring that Surah An-Nisa it's like taking society into a deep dive into the very ethical um, identity of the society and the nature of all the relationships that this society is built upon. So, يَا أَيُّهَا الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا لَا تَأْكُلُوا أَمْوَالَكُمْ بَيْنَكُمْ بِالْبَاطِلِ إِلَّا أَنْ تَكُونَ تِجَارَةً عَنْ تَرَادٍ مِنْكُمْ وَلَا تَقْتُلُوا أَنْفُسَكُمْ إِنَّ اللَّهَ كَانَ بِكُمْ رَحِيمًا So, وَمَنْ يَفْعَلْ ذَلِكَ عِدْوَانًا وَظُلْمًا فَسَوْفَ نُصْلِيهِ نَارًا وَكَانَ ذَلِكَ عَلَى اللَّهِ يَسِيرًا Then it comes and sort of underscores sort of an undercurrent or a, 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 a theme that flows as an undercurrent in much of the narrative by saying, in all cases, remember the following. You are absolutely not allowed to devour each other's possessions wrongfully. There is a big grammatical debate that there's no need for us to go, get into as to the second phrase that comes, But the best way to translate it, it is not saying, as a lot of translations would have it, it's not saying, don't, do not devour each other's possessions wrongfully and the only rightful way of having each other's possessions is through trade. That's not what it's saying. And that's the big grammatical debate. But rather, what it is saying is do not devour each other's profit properties wrongfully even if it is through trade. That's the only way you can square the grammar. So in other words, you can't you can't exploit each other even if it is through consensual trade. On the basis of that, all the narratives in Islamic law that forbade contracts of adhesion, where you enter into contract with someone who doesn't have a choice but to enter into the contract, or you dictate a price to someone because who to, you know, someone who's take an extreme example, right? Someone who's dying of thirst, and you come and say, I'll sell you a glass of water for 
if one grammatical understanding of this verse would mean that's a legitimate contract, but that cannot be. That, that's a wrong grammatical understanding. The correct grammatical understanding is say, no, even if consent is given, that consent doesn't make this a legitimate or rightful exchange. Of course, this is an extreme example, you know, $10,000 for a glass of water, but contracts of adhesion, coercive contracts, extortionist contracts. So the issue of what's a legally recognizable consent or not legally recognizable consent is complicated. You know, but even if you don't torture someone to give consent, consent by, by, you know, beating them or put a gun to their head, there are, even if certain relations by trade are still an immoral taking of property, a wrongful taking of property. The most extreme example of that, of course, or the most clear example of that is usury. Usury is often consensual, right? But we, we come and say that, no, you, that's not allowed. But short of usury, there are all types of situations where, I mean, an example um, where um, this is interestingly, I, I found later on in law school that there is a very similar American case to this. But in, when you study Sharia, they often give you the, the following example. Uh, you come and you sell a, the, the example they always use is a poor woman. A, a poor woman, a widow, it's always a widow who's raising uh, orphan children. A widow who's raising orphan children uh, furniture for her home. And you tell her, okay, you know, th this furniture costs you, let's say, a thousand dollars. And you say, okay, so you are going to pay, make installments on this furniture, but if you miss any of the payments, you are to pay, let's say, ten dollars a month. But if you miss any of the payments, I have the right to come and take all the furniture and you have no rights in the furniture whatsoever. So let's say in this example, I'm, I'm changing it a little bit to, to make it fit dollars. The woman pays ma payments, makes payments on the furniture until she reaches $990. Comes the last month, and she is unable to pay the final $10. You say, oops, okay, you missed your last payment. You come in and you take all the furniture from her. Is this legal? This is where this Quranic verse comes in. They say, well, many jurists, the answer they give is, it's a complicated answer because you get into fair usage and all that stuff. But anyway, that basically, that no, it's not. It's not fair to say, well, you pay up to $990, but still you have no rights in the furniture. You missed your last $10 and all your rights are gone. Um, so 
underscoring the principle that understand whether it has to do with orphans, whether it has to do with inheritance, whether it has to do with people who have no right to inheritance but are part of the household, whether it has to do with uh, marital relationships or, or the various incentives that have led people to abuse the definition of marriage or to refuse to grant divorce or so on. In all these situations, remember that if the money you are taking is not ethically consumed, if, if the taking of the money is not ethical, is not moral, Bill Bottle, and it is intentionally wide and expansive because there are many situations where the definition of a bottle is not clear. But there are also many situations where we could say you should have known because in your heart you know that, that you're taking more than what is fair. Even if it is pursuant to what you tell yourself in consensual trade, that doesn't change the fact. Notice, Udwanan wazulma. If it involves injustice or if it involves aggression, or perhaps better translation is transgression. If it, it involves transgressing upon the rights of others, or it involves injustice against others, then you should know that what you are really doing is buying a share in hellfire. And that God sees all. See, we've just reached to verse 30. But you see how in Surah An-Nisa, it's like, okay, we've talked a lot of generalities. We've now told you that you have a serious moral project, but now it is challenging many of the relationships that at the time the Quran is revealed, led to abusive conditions. A good student of the Quran would study carefully the philosophy of Quranic reform and understand that, you see, none of this reform program works without a very lively conscience. Because if you don't have people that understand the importance of moral responsibility, the entire Quranic project fails. It's not going to work. If, if you don't have people that are accustomed to thinking about, you know, is this fair? Is this just? Is this equitable? Is this decent? Is this moral? 
Because that is consistently what the Quran is challenging us to engage in. Okay, let's stop here. It's 9.30. Just... A good stopping point. Okay, alhamdulillah. Um, we did just a couple more verses than we did last session. <laughs> but it was amazing because it's like so, so rich and it's, it's hard to... Um, keep up with with everything but it, the just you know I mean you, you covered so many examples that really just to say it's amazing that um, you know when you point out the progression of the surahs that we've covered and the message that each one has in essence that now we've moved to the idea of empowering the disempowered and deconstructing point by point um, as a way to truly understand like the broader moral project. So I think this is what, what's really exciting, the idea that this, there is a chronic moral project, there is a moral philosophy, and that so many of these um, potentialities have really not been um, explored in our, in our modern age. And um, so it's, you know, like the idea that, for example, that inheritance laws are extremely technical and you know, that it's not about cold mathematics, but that there is a principle and a revolutionary idea that could really um, be, you know, um, mined for, for all kinds of potential. Um, emphasizing to us that, you know, God knows the obstacles, and um, but you really are either on the side of what God, you know, is trying to advocate or you're an outsider. Um, pointing out that you know there the, this idea of the four witnesses, and that God is speaking to the co the collectivity, not just an individual, but that even in that sense, um, you know when we're talking about a process, whether it's a judicial process and a and a judgment, um, that you know that again has not really been explored, um, but it's so powerful just to see the examples of um, the things that. God was addressing that um, combating false accusations, um, exploiting, you know, um, like women, the relationship with women for financial gain, um, pointing out that, you know, this is not just about your feelings, but that God, you know, you must be mindful of God in, in your interactions, that kindness and goodness um, are a moral obligation, um, that marriage is a heavy covenant, and even just dispelling a lot of the um, the patriarchal narratives. It was so valuable because I think we inherit so much of these ideas that live on to our day, <clears throat> and it doesn't seem like anyone is really even making the admission that these things come from a patriarchal interpretation and that there's room for different kinds of interpretation. Um, and even, you know, talking about... Um, the idea of secret marriages and um, and the treatment of of slaves. There's so much that can be applied to our modern situation, um, and just the underlying idea of you know you <clears throat> you can't play games with God. God knows what's what you're thinking, what you're trying to do, um, and you can try to make something appear that it's above board. Like even if you have a trade agreement or some kind of um, you know, something that seems consensual, but God is very aware of the power dynamics that are inherent in any type of interaction. You know, God knows what you're trying to do, 
and you're not going to fool God. So, I mean, there's so much beautiful detail. Um, but I think the message is clear and it's also very intuitive. I think people understand, like, you know, you know what's right and you know what's wrong. It's just a question of whether you want to justify or convince yourself um, that you have a, a, you know, you have a way to do this, what you want for your, for wrongful gain. Um, but it's so beautiful to see the, you know, underscoring of protection of rights, um, protection of um, people from abuse, um, and, you know, that, that, that there's a, a, a moral covenant that people are aware of. It's so you feel like God is reminding you of something you know, and whether you choose to see it and implement it or not is something mm. else. So um, thank you so much for this incredible continuation. Um, you know, so we finished at verse 30. So, inshallah. <laughs> I keep saying take your time because, you know, this is, this is just pure gold, and we're not going to have this opportunity to really engage in this way ever again. So, you know, it, it's okay that we're going slow, and um, it's, we just savor every moment. <laughs> so... <laughs> Um, thank you so much, everyone, for being with us. Um, sadly, I think, in, you know, we won't see each other again for another week. Um, but inshallah, you know, it gives us a little time to, to really think about what we covered. And uh, hope you have a wonderful week. And we will, inshallah, see you next Saturday. Okay. Assalamu alaikum. Assalamu alaikum.